Welcome to a podcast for The Lancet. It's July 4th, 2019, and today we have a new paper out online on nerve transfer and its use in surgery for the regaining of some movement in the upper limbs. Now, to discuss this a little bit further, our senior editor, Dr. Jonathan Pym, spoke with the lead author, Natasha Van Ziel. Uh, I'm here talking to Natasha Van Ziel, who is the author of a a paper that we're about to publish in The Lancet, which aims to restore upper limb function in people with tetraplegia. So, hello, Natasha. Hello. Okay, now what I'd like to ask you is, who is this treatment actually going to help? And and what are the problems that these people, the people that it's going to help, have? And what sorts of things, you know, might have actually caused the difficulties that they have? Nerve transfers, um, the nerve transfers we're using here are designed to restore function to um, the the common losses that somebody with a a cervical spinal cord injury uh, has. So um, uh, commonly somebody with a C5, C5, C6 spinal cord injury uh, will have is that they um, they cannot um, extend their elbow um, and they cannot open their hand and they cannot close their hand to grasp and pinch something. They do, however, have um, some shoulder function and often the ability to bend their elbow and sometimes they have the ability to extend their wrist. And so um, what we're trying to do is uh, use nerves uh, to some of the muscles that are working. Uh, those muscles uh, are expendable because there's often more than one muscle doing uh, the same job and we're taking that power supply if you like and plugging it into uh, a paralyzed nerve and then reactivating um, or reanimating that paralyzed muscle. Okay so just just, just go back one step what sort of you know you say spinal nerve injury spinal cord mm. injury what sort of yes. things will have caused these i know you list a couple in the paper but yeah just for the sake of what well that we, we divide spinal cord injury into traumatic and non-traumatic um all of the people in the study had traumatic spinal cord injuries and that's just because our center tends to service the traumatic spinal cord injury population in uh in the state of victoria in, in australia and uh, most of our patients, about 50% of our patients are, uh, have injuries as a consequence of a of motor vehicle accident. So they were either in the car or they were on a bike or on a motorbike or even on the road and hit by a car. And then the rest of them are, are sporting injuries, um, like diving into shallow water um, or rugby or football um, injury, or they're a fall. Um, now, non-traumatic spinal cord injuries um, are really... Uh, things like uh, diseases of the spinal cord or um, infarctions or like a, a stroke, if you like, or a bleed into the, into the spinal cord um, or injuries uh, that occur during surgery um, when people are having uh, disc surgery or something like that. And, and nerve transfers can be applied in traumatic or in non-traumatic spinal cord injury. Uh, but this particular study, uh, just, be, just because of who we are and who we look after, has focused on um, the traumatic group. And you do give a figure in the, in the paper. Can you, um, you, you say each year there are between 250,000 and 500,000 people yes. worldwide uh, yes. acquire yes. spinal cord injury. Is that because we're all yes. going around doing crazy things like bungee jumping and, you know, uh, <laughs> and diving, as you say, diving into lakes where we can't see the bottom? Yeah, I mean, mostly it's because we're using cars. 
I mean, it's that, mainly cars, all, is it? Not not yeah, motorbikes or anything like that, then. Mo- it, mo- well, uh, w- yes, and motorbikes. It but is motorbikes right. accidents often involve cars. As right. Well. Yes. So, yes. Um, so it's it's mostly road accidents. Right. Um, uh, and particularly in, in in developing countries. Yes. Um, and then and then in in uh, countries that are more developed, of course, there is a big component of of non-traumatic injury and and injury uh, from fairly simple falls in older people. Okay, so so we, yeah. you know we are potentially looking at a large amount of people that could benefit yeah. from these these operations. Yeah. yeah. So 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 as 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 a, as a group of surgeons uh, that, that 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 treat. Uh, these types of injuries, trying to restore function in upper limbs, we, we feel that probably half of the patients that um, that have uh, a tetraplegia or quadriplegia would potentially benefit from surgery. Okay. Um, so this is a large number. Surgery, it's a large number. Yeah. The, the, the uptake of surgery is is quite a lot less, and is is really very dependent on. Uh, the, the setups in the various countries with regard to the spinal cord units and their relationship with the surgeon. Right. It's very important that that within the spinal cord centre, the doctors, the rehab physicians, the um, the nurses, and the therapists are aware of the options for surgical reconstruction of the upper limb so that they can integrate that into that person's rehabilitation. They need to be aware about it. They need to know who would benefit from it and they need to have a relationship with the surgeon so they can get that patient to be assessed by the surgeon um, preferably as early as possible, particularly now that nerve transfers have come into the picture because we like to get the nerve transfers done sooner rather than later to sort of to maximise the outcomes. So, so look, not to flatter you too much, is it difficult to do this? And do you know? Do you, as a you're you're a plastic surgeon, aren't you? Is that yours? That's mm, you, know, do, yes. you know. Do you know? Is this something that the, the the not quite so highly skilled surgeon can do in you know? So the low and middle in, middle income country, for example. Yeah. So 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 you know, it, it's actually not that difficult to do. The surgery itself is not that difficult to do, and is certainly within the skill set of anybody who's been trained in microsurgical techniques. Right. And that might be somebody who's originally a plastic surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon. What I do think, however, is difficult and requires a, a long learning process is um, the decision-making process as to what particular operation you offer a patient, whether you do a nerve or whether you do a tendon or whether you, uh, how many different multiple um, transfers you do, uh, whether you do it in one side or the other or both. Uh, what is the best uh, combination for that particular patient? Yeah. And um, and I think that that really requires a, a long apprenticeship, really, with a junior a junior surgeon affiliated to a senior surgeon, because these patients, um, while they have very little and they have a lot to gain, they also have a lot to lose if things go wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, they're a very vulnerable group. And um, we, we, we can't afford to be making mistakes with them. So I, I think I think that that patient selection and uh, surgical planning and decision making that's the tricky bit. The operation is 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 pretty straightforward. Right. So look, you, you you're sort of broaching into into my sort of area a little bit. You know about the psychological aspects of it. You know what does it mean then for these people? You know getting back function of the hand essentially. Uh, yeah. when they haven't had this? What, what, what do you see in terms of, let's do the practical aspects and then, you know, more psychological aspects. What do, what do you see there? 
Well, I think anybody um, who sort of bandages their hands up for 10 minutes will realize how annoying it is not to have hand function. I mean, we use our hands all the time in everything that we do. So um, to be able to restore useful hand function to somebody uh, makes an enormous difference to their to their life um, and uh, their ability to be independent and their ability to to interact with their loved ones and to hold hands and to shake hands and to hold on to um, their special people uh, to be able to pick up and manipulate objects to um, drive to write to um, uh, you know do do their hair do their makeup brush their teeth feed themselves do all of these things without the need for adaptive devices and to do them efficiently and, and, and strongly. Um, when, when you reconstruct elbow extension, uh, people always think of, you know, elbow flexion is important, you know, that's, you know, people doing their biceps curls. And of mm. course, it's important. You've got to be able to bring your hand to your mouth. But if you can't extend your elbow, you have no workspace. Your arm is up against your chest. You need to be able to reach out. To, to pick something up or to do something. When you're in a chair, you need to be able to extend your hand above your head to reach a light switch or to take something off a shelf. Uh, the world is designed for people who can stand up, not for people who are seated all the time. Um, you need elbow extension to propel your wheelchair to help with as you transfer from the bed to the car or uh, the chair to the car or the chair to the bed. Um, and um, it helps also with... Um, with pressure relief, so there's there's, there's yeah. many things that, um, you, that you've you convinced can do. me. You, you've utterly yeah. convinced me. There. I mean, and I really like the fact that you you know you you hold on to their special person. I mean that that right. It, yeah. You know, we are a very sort of tactile group. We are you know although yeah. I I'm not sure about our moving into electronics now, but you know these are important yeah. things, aren't they? You know, if you can't yeah. hold hands with people, what 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 really? Yeah. You know, it's the yeah. end, really, isn't it? Um, although, although I do, I do need to put in a good word for the electronic devices because I think, particularly in the in discussing nerve transfers, because yeah. I think one of the um, advantages of using nerve transfers in the hand for grasp and pinch is that, unlike tendon transfer reconstructed hands, which are really a bit tricky to get open, even if you've got a good working hand opening nerve transfer on that on that hand, uh, with, with 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 nerve transfer innovated hands. They can open their hand up beautifully into an open hand position, which enables them to be able to type and ta and and tap and swipe and mm. use a trackpad and use mm. a mouse. Okay, and, well, look, uh, let's say that we can say that they're both benefiting the the individual then, but without one, yes. you know, the 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 yes. other is useless then, really. Can I can I just ask? Look, so um, I I'm not sure how much longer we've got. What do what do you envisage for the future? You know, I I I mean, I see all these other types of uh, operations trying to restore function for people. Mm. You know, with exoskeletons and you know stem yeah. cell, uh, etc. Yeah. Where yeah. where do you see you know this technique? You know, although it's you know it's yeah. pretty, it, it does strike me as being pretty sophisticated. But you know, it's not. Yeah. Where where do you see it going? Can you? And I mean, I'm only sort of dreaming. You know, are mm. you going to be able to stretch the nerve right out down to the leg, for example? Are you going to be able to yeah. start innovating one of the plexuses, you know, down in the yeah. in in, yeah. in in the pelvis, for example? What what yeah. do you, what's the future? All right. Well, let's well let's let's sort of stay within the next decade or so <laughs> for a start. I think that um, uh, the the future for now is um, is is learning how to uh, combine tendons and nerves and maybe also uh, the neuroprosthetic um, 
technologies that we possess already to try and give somebody as much function as we possibly can. Now, um, uh, the neuroprosthetic uh, technology uh, is obviously an implantable device that allows you to um, activate uh, uh, muscles distant uh, to to the muscle that you're moving. Um, for example, activate your, your trunk musculature. Mm. Uh, patients who are quadriplegic don't have any trunk stability. Um, and that's what makes them very different to paraplegic patients who are just missing their legs, you know, and they can mm. sit in wheelchairs and look really, you know, you can do, be the most athletic-looking uh, individual, mm. whereas the, para, the quadriplegic patients uh, you know, often have, will have a strap to hold them in place. So if we can get uh, the neuroprosthetic technology working, even if it's just in the chest and the abdomen, mm. uh, to give stability to the arms, and then we are using every you know surgical technique that we've got in terms of nerve transfers and tendon transfers and um, uh, other other tendon and, 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 and joint altering procedures to give uh, the maximum function. Then that's that's what I see as you know right. the, the next step for us. And are you um, doing that then, or are people doing that already? Well, we we are trying to work out. Uh, the, the the clinical variables that predict the best outcomes for nerve transfer surgery. So while we've presented in this study uh, 50 nerve transfers, we've actually completed probably about well 164, I think it was on last count. So we've got a bigger uh, database available to us and uh, to be able to try and correlate outcomes with particular preoperative characteristics. So that we can try and 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 uh, more accurately predict uh, who will do well, and also avoid people uh, offering nerve transfers to people where the nerve transfers will fail. Right. Um, uh, we also have, um, which is also not uh, released yet uh, because we're still working on it, a whole uh, se- selection of every single patient in that study had nerve sample taken from them. Uh, so a little few millimeters of nerve was removed before the transfer was done. And uh, this, this nerve tissue is being analyzed so that we can actually get a really good idea about uh, the, the, the nerve health uh, uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the nerves that are being used for transfer. Mm-hmm. And again, correlating the nerve health with what the patient looked like preoperatively, both electrophysiologically and clinically, and then also what their outcomes are. And to try and sort of put fit that all together as well. Um, and then we would like to see whether... Uh, because we think that that healthy nerves do better in in, in nerve transfer surgery. Um, How can we maintain the health of those peripheral nerves that we're potentially going to use for nerve transfer surgery um, by uh, using preoperative therapy techniques such as electrical stimulation, functional um, or surface electrical stimulation, to keep the circuitry alive uh, and healthy and the nerve speaking to the muscle, even though it's paralyzed, but we're doing this through artificial means, and um, and whether whether that then improves our outcomes. So that's that's something that we would like to do mm. uh, as well. Thank you to both Natasha and Jonathan, and to you for listening. If you'd like to read more about the paper that was discussed today, you can find it online at thelancet.com. Thanks again.